And welcome to another episode of the KI Prime podcast with me, Alina Jenkins. In earlier episodes, we've heard about the history of this prestigious prize for research in medical education and from previous winners, Professors Brian Hodges, Lorelai Lingard and David Irby. In this fifth episode, I'm talking with the winner of the 2020 prize, Dr. Glenn Regeer. Professor in the Department of Surgery and Associate Director of the Centre for Health Education Scholarship in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. His main research impact has been in conceptualising methodology and its relationship to theory. His innovations and work, especially with qualitative methods, have had a great impact on the field of educational research. He's also provided outstanding support and guidance to junior researchers. In our earlier interview, he explained why collaboration has been a major part of his research career. So my research area has been uh, slightly more diverse than probably most people. My career has been a career of really working with a variety of people. I kind of think of my model as helping people develop labs and then joining those labs And so I have collaborated extensively with a number of individuals, including Jeff Norman, who was one of the earlier winners of the prize, Richard Resnick, who was also one of the earlier winners of the prize, Brian Hodges and Lorelai Lingard are all individuals that I've collaborated with quite extensively. And so I've, I've been a part of each of their labs at different points along the way. So my career has been quite diverse. It started early with looking at issues of assessment and what authentic clinical assessment would look like. That's continued to be a theme throughout my programs of research and throughout my area. But I've also moved off into a variety of other domains. The probably biggest of them is the area of self-assessment and really kind of debunking the assumption that self-assessment is a sensible way of engaging in self-regulated learning activity. And so have spent a lot of time looking at alternative methods of being able to maintain competence beyond just assuming that we can identify our area of weakness, go learn about that and become competent again in a particular area that we were struggling in. So, 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 so that's a, that's a big area that I've spent time in. More recently, my, my research has shifted again a little bit. And I would say that the broad theme is looking at human agency in systems, particularly interested in the medical education world, how the agency of students and their own goals and motivations in a particular context interact with the theory of the educational practices that we're supposed to be doing and how those motivations of the students and interactions with the system shift the intent of the curricular goals that we had. So how do you go about looking at the agency of individuals? I would imagine there's a high level of complexity. Yeah, complexity is exactly the right word to be thinking about, because a lot of what I'm looking at is the sort of a lens of complex adaptive systems and how 
each individual in the system has their own goals and each of those goals interact and shift. And so people's motivations and interactions change as they're, as they're working with different people along the way. So it includes things like we, we use the Socratic method very regularly in the context of clinical teaching where a professor or a, a preceptor will ask a student a particular question. And one of the things that one of my colleagues and I have played with is the question of how students manage the situation when they don't know the answer to a question, but they're trying to maintain some level of credibility with their preceptor. And one of the interesting things that we found under that context is, one, they have more control over the situation that, that, than we had imagined because they have strategies for figuring out how to avoid being asked questions at moments when they don't necessarily want to be asked questions. But also, they set the preceptor up sometimes to ask certain questions so that they can know the answers to it. But what we really found is particularly interesting is that they are, of course, worried about their own projected image. But the projected image that the students were more concerned about was not a projected image of competence, but a projected image of a teachable individual. Because what they realized was that this, that in the clinical context, because they don't know very much clinically, they're not particularly central as, a, as an individual a participant in the interaction. And so the only way that they can really get meaningful contact with their supervisor is if their supervisor is excited about teaching them. And so they don't try to become competent or show themselves to be competent. They show themselves to be teachable so that the preceptor wants to pay attention to them, wants to teach them, because it's exciting to watch them learn. Does this tie in with your research around behaviours and leveraging discomfort around moments of uncertainty? This is the work that John Ilgen, who is an eMERGE doc that I'm working with, who's doing his own PhD in uh, medical education, has been very interested. It started with the question of comfort with uncertainty because it's often stated that faculty are unhappy with, with learners because they're not comfortable with uncertainty and they try to impose certainty on circumstances that are inherently uncertain. And so what John started to try to do first was ask the question of what does it what does it mean when a faculty member is comfortable or uncomfortable with uncertainty? And what are they doing in order to maintain a certain level of comfort or at least willingness to continue to engage in that situation despite its ambiguity or uncertainty? And what he found was that the, the preceptors themselves were using mechanisms like projecting forward. What are the possible things that could happen here? And if they felt like they were able to manage any of the things that might reasonably happen here, then they were okay not knowing what was going to happen because they felt like they could keep the situation from spinning out of control. And they would monitor their own feelings. Like, am I feeling comfortable in the situation? Do I feel like I've got things under control? Is this moving the way that I thought it was going to move? So that they can be judging whether the mental model that they've got is continuing to be relevant and appropriate in the circumstance. What John's doing now is he's He's interviewing residents, relatively junior residents in that same circumstance, which are the individuals who have finished their doctoral training and now are doing their clinical training. And those individuals have the uncertainty of the situation and the uncertainty of what might happen and the uncertainty about the possibilities of what could go on. But they have this additional interesting uncertainty that they're not convinced that they're 
their judgments of uncertainty are accurate. And so they have to use other kinds of mechanisms to decide whether it's safe to go forward. And they'll do things like check with the whether the preceptor is looking uncomfortable or not, rather than deciding whether they're uncomfortable or not. And they may move forward even if they're uncomfortable, if the preceptor doesn't look like they're anxious in the situation. So those additional kinds of the additional layer of complexity that they have for monitoring whether it's okay to keep moving forward in this situation or not puts them in a position where some of the behaviors that they seem to engage in might look like um, being uncomfortable with uncertainty in places where the faculty might feel comfortable. You've been doing this for a number of years. Your PhD was in cognitive psychology. How have things changed since you started? Well, I would say that the the field has changed radically since I first came into it. In the early days, I think cognitive psychology was a was a good natural first fit for medical education because cognitive psychology tends to focus on the individual and what's going on inside the individual and uses the social context as a as a complicating factor in that. Whereas a place like sociology says, no, that social environment is the action where all of the action is, and individuals are just participants in that kind of activity. So, you know, medicine is quite naturally in that kind of same mindset where they say the problem is in the body of the individual. And yes, social determinants of health matter, but they're complicating factors in the real problem, and the real problem is in the individual. So I think cognitive psychology was a good natural first partner with uh, medical education as we moved into the scholarship of medical education. But since that time, when I first came in, a huge number of other perspectives have have been brought to bear on the situation. So we have a, a number of perspectives that include sociology and anthropology and political science and population sciences and economics and so forth. So all of those other kinds of perspectives, which decentralize the individual have started to become important and recognized in our context. And so what that's done, I think, for the field is it's made us all more effectively aware of the need to include multiple perspectives in the ways that we think about the problems that we're trying to struggle with and understanding that each of us only has one lens on the potential problem rather than the best definition of the problem that we're trying to deal with. Some key areas of focus from the fellowship last year was around feedback, communication and language. I've been speaking about this with Brian, Lorelai and David too. How important has this been in your research? The notion of feedback has become another central conversation. It was a sort of a natural follow-on from me from the self-assessment literature that I was working on. Once you start to debunk the idea that self-assessment or or individual self-assessments are sufficient for the purposes of being able to keep updated and to learn effectively, the question became the then what? And the then what was really getting information from other people, which included issues of feedback. And so a lot of the work that I was engaging in, in the, in the domain of self-assessment, kind of naturally transitioned into domains of feedback and what good feedback looks like. And in that circumstance, I ended up uh, having the pleasure of working with a, a psychiatrist. And she really started to look at the ways that we were talking about feedback and said, 
the, the ways that we look at feedback in medical education are the ways we used to look at psychotherapy in about the 1950s and 1960s. And so we've moved a long way in psychotherapy to recognize that behavior change and, and mental set doesn't change simply by giving people the knowledge of what's different between the way that they're conceptualizing the world and the way that somebody else is conceptualizing the world. It really requires uh, working together and co-constructing a way of moving forward. And so she, Summer Tellio, brought in the notion of the therapeutic alliance and translated it into what she referred to as the education alliance. And that work has really been about the relationship between the two individuals rather than necessarily about the experience of one individual or the other. And Rola Ajawi, another colleague of mine from Australia, has really taken that forward. And that's something that she has really been able to accentuate and, and really, I think, fundamentally change the way that we're thinking about the feedback literature. That said, I have to say that I'm still a cognitive psychologist in my heart of hearts, and I keep on thinking about what is going through a person's head that allows them to be able to engage in that kind of feedback and hear what the other person is trying to talk about. And so relationship is the mechanism by which the individual is brought into the the situation. And I just, it's, you know, so deeply ingrained in me that I can't help but always think about what's going on in a person's head. Where are you hoping that your research will take you next? I'm continuing to be very intrigued by the questions of the human agency in our learning situations and how our structures get modified through the interactions of people on the ground. And so my my work has continued to focus on and will continue to focus on questions like, how do we better understand the nature of the interventions that we're creating? So things like competency-based medical education is a is a grand and intriguing theoretical framework and it's a great abstraction. But what does it look like with people on the ground who have their own motivations? How do the how do the plans get distorted or, or our grand original plans get distorted through the goals and motivations of the of the preceptors and the learners and the interaction between those particular groups of individuals? You mentioned competency-based education, and again, there's been much discussion about this with the fellows and within the field of medical education. What are your thoughts? You know, one of the pieces that I have myself been working on over the last little while is recognizing that any intervention can sort of be conceptualized at a bunch of levels. So often we think about the intervention at the level of the of the actual practices that we're engaging in. But those practices were developed on the basis of a set of principles for how learning should happen. And those principles were developed on the basis of a philosophy of what good learning looks like. And so it's at the it's at the level of the philosophy where we often see the original discontent with a particular approach that we're dealing with right now. And so any new approach starts at that philosophical level that becomes embodied in a set of principles that becomes enacted in a set of practices. And so uh, something like competency-based medical education, we need to understand that it's going to look different in every place that it gets enacted because every place has its own constraints and affordances and ways that they need to leverage what's great about their program and manage what's potentially problematic about their program. 
but the principles are supposed to be staying the same. And so really, as we start to look at what's working and what's not working, or is even is this competency-based medical education or not, we can't necessarily simply say, well, if you've got this kind of assessment program, and if you've got a competency committee, and if you've got this happening, and if you've got a good set of things, then by definition, you're doing competency-based medical education. Because you can easily create a situation in which the frequent assessment process could either be leveraged as a good learning opportunity such that it promotes a positive relationship between the faculty member and the learner, or it could create a surveillance society experience such that the learner thinks that they are always on show and can never show any weaknesses, which interferes with their ability to work well with a preceptor who needs to know what those weaknesses are so that they can work together. So the same competency-based medical education practices could serve the purposes of the principles in one context and could completely undermine the purposes of the principles in another context. And so you really need to be looking down at the level of the practices as they're experienced by the individuals engaging in those practices, rather than as observed by somebody from the outside. And that's where those sort of learner goals and, and preceptor goals always come back and become a key part of what's going on, is how is that a curriculum experienced, rather than how is that curriculum enacted? Earlier, you spoke of your collaboration with Brian, Lorelei, Jeff and Richard, what impact did they have on your research and what did you learn from them? <laughs> wow, everything. You know, the great thing about being in a place like uh, medical education in Canada is the extent to which we truly, I think, enact the model of interdisciplinary collaboration such that it's not that each of us has our own perspective and we just bring that perspective to bear, but we find ourselves needing to negotiate our perspectives collectively for the purposes of being able to come up with a deeper and richer and better way of accommodating all of the ways we think about it rather than each of the ways we think about it. And so to, to properly engage in that kind of an interaction you have to spend some time really learning about and understanding other people's perspectives so that you can understand how those perspectives interface. And so with people like Lorelai and Brian, Lorelai basically brought the whole notion of constructivist ways of thinking about problems to me, that idea that there's not one right answer, but uh, multiple ways of being able to think about a problem. She was the one that gave that language for me and really taught me how to think about that. She also is the person that I apprenticed myself to to learn about qualitative research because I wasn't trained at all in qualitative research in my PhD methodology. Brian brought to bear the critical theory perspective on things and really starting to ask the questions of who's benefiting from this situation and how do we start thinking about the, the power that's flowing through an environment. And so those pieces of the puzzle, the constructivist nature, the, the critical theory nature, all of those things are things that are 
are voices in my head, even as I'm engaging in my cognitivist perspective on the world. So, you know, as we've collaborated over the years, Lorelai's phrase for it is we've sort of colonized each other into our, into each other's perspectives such that we, we still can own a perspective, but that perspective has multiple shadings relative to the way in which it was, I think, understood or appreciated when each of us began our, our journeys in this field with the newly minted PhD or newly minted uh, confidence of an individual who believes that they know that the way the world really works. So here we are, you've just won the Karolinska Institute at Prize for Research in Medical Education. How did you feel when you heard that you'd won? Uh, well, I was, the, the first was just sort of shocked and overwhelmed, to be perfectly honest, and, and have to admit that I went through a, a small a reinforcement pause. It was difficult for me to actually do my job for the next week or so afterwards, as I, as I, as I just kind of walked around saying, well, that's really, that's really amazing. It's, uh, you know, I, I've had some time to digest it now and to uh, come to terms with it, so to speak. And I, I really think that my strong reaction, my strong initial reaction and my on going reaction is really to think about this as as a communal win it's not because of my work that i won this award but because of the amazing people that i get to work with and because of the amazing sense of supportive culture that has been created in the context of canadian medical education scholarship you know, each of the places that I've had the opportunity to work and develop a unit and a community, I've always had the support of the deans and the and the administrative community to allow me and and my colleagues the space to be able to develop that culture and to create the community that is going to thrive collectively rather than individually. And so this is, I think, an amazing testament to the communities and the people that I get to work with. And I have to say, in, in all pride, a real testament to the Canadian environment. This is another acknowledgement, I think, as has been Lorelai and Richard and Brian and Jeff, of just the amazing culture and mechanisms of support that Canada has created to allow all of us to thrive collectively and therefore be recognized individually. What would you say to people who are listening to this, who are perhaps early in their career? What advice would you give to them to get to where you are today? I think that the first thing that I would say is don't try to do it on your own. It really is a, a learning experience and being able to leverage your engagement with other people, the mentorships that are available in the community, spending your time learning from other people and not being presumptuous about what you know or what what you're thinking is the right way of doing it. I think that the maximizing the collaborations between theorists and PhDs and the clinicians on the ground, such that we ensure that the incisive conceptualizations of our PhD community, combined with the praxis uh, and wisdom of our clinical community, who are doing this stuff on the ground on a day-to-day -day basis, makes a much stronger story and a much more authentic description of the situation than if, if either of the two groups try to go it alone and do it on their own. So collaborate is one of my my strongest pieces of advice for anybody who's getting into the field. Dr. Glenn Regeer. 
We'll return to the previous winners of the prize towards the end of this podcast series. In the next 13 episodes, I'll be talking to the KI Prime Fellows and hearing more about their cutting-edge research. From examining the neuroscientific correlates of clinical reasoning to exploring the dominance of the global north, we'll hear from inspiring scientists, doctors, psychologists and researchers, starting with Dr Nicole Woods, a cognitive psychologist whose work examines the role of basic science knowledge in clinical reasoning and the development of medical expertise. Until then, goodbye. Thank you.